0: Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 5 Better Living Through Chemistry. Sandy Irvin was 22 years old in 1924. He had recently graduated from Oxford University, where he'd studied engineering and been part of a successful rowing crew. His aptitude for engineering was well known. As a teenager, during World War I, he had started sending designs to the British War Office for improvements to aeroplanes to enable greater stability in flight and for the use of machine guns through propellers. Bear in mind that flight was an incredibly new discipline in World War I. He'd also caught the attention of many of Britain's foremost mountain climbers. He was an enthusiastic, capable and practical man. This led to him being invited to join the 1924 British mission to Mount Everest. On the mission, his practical skills drew a lot of praise. He made improvements to the oxygen equipment, beds, stoves, and cameras. He was a popular member of the crew. You probably know the end of Sandy Irvin's story, even if you don't know his name. On the 8th of June, 1924, Sandy Irvin, relatively inexperienced but very practical, and the more experienced George Mallory, set out to make their final push for the summit of Everest. We don't know whether they got there. What we do know is that at some point, in worsening conditions, they fell to their deaths. Mallory's body was found in 1999. Sandy Irvin has yet to be found. When you think of those Everest missions, you picture a crew of mustachioed white men in chunky suits, They smoke pipes and look brave and wear tweed. However, tweed was for the camp. When they were climbing, they wore something else. Mallory and Irvine wore mountaineering suits made by Burberry, better known these days for the beige checked scarves and bags. The suits comprised layers of silk, cotton and wool, covered in an outer layer of gabardine. Gabardine is a fabric made of worsted wool, that's the fine wool you'll see used in men's suits, rather than the woolly wool used for knitting sweaters. In 2006, a man named Graham Hoyland decided to try and explore Everest, wearing replicas of Mallory and Irvine's clothing. He found that the fabrics were light, comfortable and warm enough to use during the day. However, he didn't think that they were thick enough to survive a bivouac on the mountain at night. What made the outfits work so well was the use of different fabrics and alternating layers. This reduced the friction between the layers, so that Mallory, Irvin and others could move with much less energy expenditure. Back in the days of Antarctic exploration, just a decade or so before, Scott and Amundsen's teams wrapped themselves in layers of wool and furs, fabrics which had quite a lot of friction. The use of more slippy materials like silk reduced that friction, meaning that Mallory and Irvin could do the same amount of effort using 20% less energy. Research also showed that Mallory and Irvin's suits would have been able to protect them all the way down to minus 30 degrees C in calm weather. Unfortunately, Mallory and Irvin were not in calm weather. Blizzard conditions disrupted their climb and ultimately led to their deaths. The Everest crew in 1924 understood the need for flexibility and freedom of movement, as well as the need to keep the human body warm, let sweat out without letting the cold in. Modern ski suits have to address the same challenges, but with the benefit of another hundred years of material science to help them. This week, I'll be looking in more detail at some of the miracle fibers that have informed the types of ski suits that are worn by biathletes today. It's a journey that will take us around the world from the rubber plantations of Asia, to research labs in the USA, to concentration camps in Germany. It's not a journey that I expected to to take when I typed what are ski suits made of into Google a few days ago. I'll also be looking back at the Barthelon Racing last weekend in Annecy Le Grand Bonheur, and looking ahead to the rest of the season as everyone stops for a Christmas break. So let's dive into a little bit more history. Joseph Shivers was born in 1920. He was interested in how things were made, not at a manufacturing level, but at a molecular level. He studied chemistry. During World War II, while still a student, he worked with the US government on anti-malarials for US troops. It's funny to think of the schoolboy Sandy Sandy Irvin sending his aeroplane designs to the British War Office and the undergraduate Joseph Shivers playing his part in the US war effort just a few decades later. After the war, Shivers joined DuPont, probably the largest of the American chemical companies. He was a company man, staying with DuPont from 1946 until his retirement in 1980. In 1958, Joseph Shivers created a polyurethane polymer which was blended with other fibers and filaments to make a textile. At first it was called Fiber K, but its technical name is elastane. It's still known as elastane in many countries, but its more famous brand names are spandex and lycra. Elastane is a molecule that's both stretchy and strong. You can stretch it eight times its normal length and it'll return to its original size. It's also lightweight, gives resistance to sunlight and moisture getting in, and lets sweat out. Let's go back. Polyurethane. Polyurethane was invented by Professor Otto, Otto Bayer and his team at the German chemical conglomerate IG Farben in the 1930s. It was used for foams and coatings, but only really demonstrated its commercial value after the war. I don't want to dwell on evil, but a quick dive into the story of IG Farben. It was formed in 1925 as a coming together of eight German chemical companies, including Bayer, BASF, and Hoechst. The companies had worked together during World War One and saw the value of a full merger in the mid-1920s. They effectively had a monopoly on the German chemical industry. And a quid pro quo came to be. Hitler wanted Germany to have independence in terms of chemical manufacture, and this gave IG Farben a ready market, which helped to finance research and innovation. In 1933, IG Farben donated 400,000 Reichsmarks to the Nazi Party. And over time, the company became influential in Hitler's plan to rearm Germany. It's worth noting that in 1933, the company had Jewish board members and employees and was even attacked by some as being a Jewish firm. By 1937, there were no Jews on the board and many Jewish scientists had been removed from the company. IG Farben went on to take over chemical plants and factories in areas occupied by the Nazis and to build new plants, most famously, that at Auschwitz, using prison labour to construct the plant at which they manufactured synthetic oil, synthetic rubber and Zyklon B gas. Executives from IG Farben were held accountable for its actions at the Nuremberg Trials, with several receiving prison sentences. The company's German operations were split into three, whilst its operations in Russia were nationalised by the Soviet government. The company paid compensation for Jewish labourers without admitting guilt. They did not pay compensation to non-Jewish labourers. All executives were out of jail by 1951. Back in the USA in the 1950s, the Textiles Fibres Department at DuPont, where Joseph Shivers worked, was already the most profitable division of the company. They were working on synthetic fibres, particularly those that would replace rubber. During World War II, there was massive demand for rubber for military vehicles, clothing, boots, wiring, ships, everything you can imagine. But 90% of the world's rubber supplies at that time came from the Far East, territory that had fallen underneath under Japanese control during the war, cutting off supplies. This meant a huge push to gather and recycle rubber and to develop alternative materials, reducing the need for rubber during the war and later. After the war, there was also a growing emphasis on products for women, the growth of consumerism and female spending power. The emphasis initially was on finding more appealing materials for girdles, which were traditionally made of rubber. This was the challenge that Joseph Shivers and his team were trying to solve. The wonderfully stretchy but strong fabric they created, fiber K, elastane, spandex, lycra, it was a revelation. As times changed, the marketing of spandex changed. In the 1960s, it was all about underwear and hosiery, and starting to venture into sports. The French Olympic team in 1968 had sportswear that included a lot of elastane. Into the 1970s and 1980s, it became associated with fitness, particularly aerobics, and then with being a fabric that was suitable for all body shapes. By 2010, 80% of the clothes sold in the US contained lycra. The main competitor to Lycra is Gore-Tex. Wilbert Gore, known as Bill, was a scientist at DuPont from 1950 to 1957, so likely worked alongside Joseph Shivers. He left to set up a company making electronic ribbon cable for use in computers. His son, Bob, worked with him. In 1969, Bob was working with some PTFE, in full, polytetrafluoroethylene, when he made a funky discovery. He found you could stretch it really hard, give it a proper yank, and it would bounce back to its original shape. Now if we go back in time again, we find that PTFE was also a product of DuPont. We know it mostly for its use in Teflon. Bill and Bob Gore had created a form of expanded PTFE, which they called Gore-Tex. It made them rich, until it didn't because Gore-Tex became the subject of multiple legal cases about patents and copyrights. First, a scientist in New Zealand claimed that he had created expanded PTFE a few years earlier. Technically, he was right. He had created the material, but he had never registered it or patented it, preferring to keep it a trade secret to gain competitive advantage. Because it was never patented, he lost the suit, and the Gores could carry on with their work. Later, however, other companies started to sell expanded PTFE materials in the USA using a Japanese process. The Gores tried to stop these pro- products as copyright infringement, but the legal system supported the other companies based on the concept of prior art. That is, products have been made using a process which predated Gore-Tex, so Gore couldn't stop them. This went on and on and on. Bearing in mind that Gore-Tex was invented in 1969, It took until 2015 for this wave of lawsuits to end, and for the Gores to have to pay $1 billion in damages. Fortunately, by this point, the Gore family fortune was sizeable. It's still a privately held company and has annual revenues in the $4 billion range. And to bring us to biathlon, they've been doing some interesting work with suit designers in Austria to create state-of-the-art cross-country and biathlon ski suits, most famously for the US cross-country team at the recent Winter Olympics. My deep dive into materials and chemicals also took me elsewhere. But we'll go into that after a quick recap of the weekend's racing in Annecy Le Grand Bornand. The first thing to say about Annecy Le Grand Bornand was that the crowds were amazing. They were in full voice throughout, not only for the French athletes, but also for others. On Sunday afternoon, just before the women's mass start, they sang the Marseilles as loudly as you can imagine. It reverberated around the valleys and it was great. The other thing to say about the racing was that the snow conditions were really changeable. After trucking in a load of snow, there was then a fresh snowfall just before the weekend. The tracks were prepared, but you then had a combination of warm weather melting the surface and very cold nights freezing it. So we saw some very icy conditions. Some skis and skiers dealt with it better than others. Poor Lynn Person spent one race having to push herself uphill using her poles because she couldn't get any purchase with her skis. Others were using the full width of the track to find any snow that they could. And we saw some of the world's best, including Johannes Bow, slipping and sliding like beginners. Ice is the great leveller. On the men's side, the sprint went as might be expected. Johannes tingis shot clear, skied fast, and won again. Ligrid picked up another second place, but there was a nice surprise in third. Benedict Doll of Germany, a 32-year-old who usually manages to win something each year, often at the biggest of events. The pursuit was Bow's to lose, and he did. He missed two shots, leaving Ligrid to take the win. Bow also struggled on his skis and stumbled a couple of times leaving the range. Perhaps a combination of the conditions and some fatigue. He finished third, while his Norwegian compatriot Vettel Christiansen took second. There were four Norwegians in the top five. At times it looked like they were all out together on a training run. The French ended up with three in the top ten, which kept the crowds engaged, but they couldn't deliver what the fans really wanted. The men's mass start saw the top 30 racers in the rankings all going head to head. I think I said top 60 last week, my mistake, it's 30. Emilia and Jacqueline made another exciting cameo appearance, pushing the pace early, chasing people down, but then having a 16 out of 20 day on the range. The Norwegians were super strong again, although Beau looked tired. Christensen and Ligrid pushed each other hard during the race, both ended up on the podium, but this left an opportunity for another Norwegian, Johannes Dalé, to come through and take the win. From the French team, Fabien Claude had a solid weekend of racing. Jacqueline did Jacqueline things, but needs to do something to change the narrative of him being an entertainer rather than a winner. Fion Maillet is still off the ski pace, but is getting better. Big shout out to Swiss biathlete Sebastian Stadler, who finished in a personal best eighth in the mass start after shooting clear. As for the women's racing, the sprint race was full of fantastic surprises. So this is the shortest race, there are only two shoots, one prone, one standing. Normally it's a race that favours fast skiers and is perhaps less about the shooting. But in this race, four of the top ten shot clear, and there were some lesser known athletes who did brilliantly. The winner was Sweden's Anna Magnusson, from her compatriot Lynn Person, and Germany's Denise Hermann Vick, who is putting together a great run of results. Now, you remember the story of Lowell Bailey winning a World Championship race from number 100? The later you go in the numbers, the less favoured you are. Well, in this race, number 86 was Sophie Chauveau, who's from Le Grand Bonnard. She shot clear and was willed around the tracks by the cheers and chants of the crowd into a great fourth place. She said in her interview afterwards that she was crying all the way around the last lap, in part because of the effort she was having to put in, but also because of the noise and emotion coming from the crowd. Quick mentions also to Lisa Vitozzi and Marie Ada for putting in solid performances, and to Lou Jean Monod, another rising French star for finishing ninth. As the women's pursuit started, we wondered if lightning could strike twice and we'd get another unexpected winner. Many of the top racers were starting from positions 10 to 20, so had a lot of chasing to do. This was the day where the conditions really started to change, and Lynn Person was the most obvious victim. Other racers moved up and dropped back as the four shoots proceeded. And then the thing we'd been waiting for actually happened. Elvira Erberg shot clear, the only person in the top 30 to do so, and won the race. Lisa Vitozzi managed to claw her way into second. She had missed two shots in the prone, but was clear in the stand and had great speed and Julia Simon, who was a bundle of energy all-race, finished third despite three misses. The women's mass start was the final race of the weekend, and I will crow a little bit here because I said last week that Lisa Theresa Hauser might be one to watch and that one of the Chevalier sisters could break the top ten. In my notes, as I was watching, I wrote, this race is such a leveller. It was a really great example of how people can move up and down the order of the race, how a mistake in one shoot can be made up for by perfection later and how fatigue can really make a difference over the course of a race weekend. In the end, it was Lisa Theresa Hauser who was able to shoot 5 out of 5 on the final shoot. She had missed one earlier but was still at the head of the race. Anais Chevalier-Boucher and Elvira Erberg were with her but both missed one on the final shoot. Eventually, Julia Simon was somehow able to ski her way into second. She had looked exhausted earlier in the race, ahead of Anne Chevalier-Boucher. The French youngsters Sophie Chauveau and Lou Jean Monod came fifth and sixth, and the second Chevalier sister, Chloe, came eighth. It was an amazing demonstration of strength and depth from the French women, and sent the crowds home singing, chanting, and ready for whatever the World Cup final would bring later that day. Back to the equipment side of things for a moment if you've done uh, downhill skiing at whatever level you'll remember wearing skis that are wide enough for your foot to fully rest on top skis that are pretty flat where the foot is and that maybe tweak up at each end you'll also have been used to both the toe and heel being held in place with bindings and boots that will kill you cross-country skis are different in many ways their profile is different If you look at one from the side, you'll see that the midpoint where your foot goes is actually the highest point of the ski, dipping down to lower points towards the tips. Think of it like a very shallow bridge over a wide river. Your foot would be at the middle of the bridge. As you push down, the ski comes into more contact with the snow. That bit of bend means that you can apply more pressure from your boot into the ski, particularly when you're trying to push yourself up hills. The other big difference about cross-country skis is they are super narrow. Generally, the narrower a ski is, the faster it moves. Cross-country skis are usually between 40 and 45 millimetres wide. That's about one and three-quarter inches. A bit of audience participation or homework for the Christmas period, measure yourself a piece of card or paper or even a piece of wood that is 40 to 45 millimetres wide. Now stand on it. You'll immediately notice that it's much narrower than your foot. So effectively, instead of standing in a ski as you would for downhill, you're standing on a ski. If you've watched by athletes or cross-country skiers going downhills and round fast corners, you'll see that they look awkward, taking tiny steps, wobbling, looking uncomfortable. This is because they're standing on a four centimeter wide piece of fiberglass, held in only at the toe, with no real connection between boot and ski, and they're probably going at 50 kilometers an hour. The big process that happens before each race is waxing. Ski technicians use chemicals to create the perfect surface on the bottom of the ski to suit the conditions. Your ski needs to behave differently if it's very icy than if it's fluffy new snow or melting pools of slush. And at Annecy we saw all of these. Waxing makes a huge difference. One account I read suggested that waxing makes more difference to the outcome of a race than if an athlete was taking performance-enhancing drugs. The challenge facing the sport of biathlon right now is this. Traditional waxes are rich in fluorine. They use a family of chemicals known as PFAs. Now remember DuPont, the chemical company that gave us lycra and spandex? They also gave us Teflon. The PFAs in ski wax create glide, just as the PFAs in Teflon help create non-stick surfaces. Now you might recall that the formula for Teflon changed a few years back to take out, you guessed it, PFAs, as they were found to be harmful to health. DuPont had known about this for decades, but had covered it up. You can learn more about this in an excellent movie called Dark Waters, starring Mark Ruffalo. PFAs present risks of cardiovascular damage, liver and kidney damage, hormone disruption, cancer, and immune system damage. A study found that ski wax technicians had 45 times as much fluorocarbon in their blood as non-skiers. Workers at the Miteni wax factory in Italy reported increased cases of diabetes, cirrhosis and cancer. And the drinking water in the local area was the subject of a World Health Organization review. There's also been research into the wider environmental effects of PFAs. Wax from skis gets deposited around the tracks with high concentrations at the start where everyone's mustering. This can then feed into local soils, rivers and streams, then into our food and water chains. PFAs are what's known as forever chemicals, they don't break down over time so they stick around forever. Interestingly, lycra and spandex are not recyclable either, so there's a lot of environmental waste and harm as a result of some very innovative chemistry that took place at DuPont in the 1950s and 1960s. So our addiction to chemistry has taken us to places we don't want to be. Fortunately, regulatory pressures have increased and some major manufacturers have committed to stop producing forever chemicals. Biathlon has also been looking at the issue and moving towards taking waxes containing PFAs out of the sport. This is difficult. PFAs are just really good at what they do, whether it's making your skis glide faster across the snow or stopping your breakfast from sticking to the pan. They've been called a necessary evil by one Biathlon coach. Right now, teams have to sign a statement before each World Cup race, To say that they're not using pfas but it only takes one rogue actor to use them and the racing is suddenly skewed remember what i said about the advantage from pfas being greater than that from performance enhancing drugs well we have tests for drugs but right now we don't have tests for pfas in wax so it's all about the honor code within the sport the international biathlon union has said in its sustainability strategy that they want pfas out of the sport both for human health and wider environmental reasons. So they're looking at handheld testing devices, stronger rules, including bans, and working with the industry to develop alternative products. This is about teams being able to trust each other. And it's interesting to see that the types of conversations that are usually about human performance enhancement are being applied to a form of equipment enhancement that has been within the rules until very recently. Back to biathlon. This week's biathlon, well, there isn't any. What you can do instead, the Heroes of Telemark, a war movie, Second World War movie starring Richard Harris, is probably on TV at some point. On the 28th of December, there is actually biathlon. It's the World Team Challenge, which takes place in Schalke in Germany. This is an amazing spectacle as it features a biathlon which snakes around outside the football stadium in Schalke before the tracks come inside and the shooting range is actually within the stadium. It is the craziest atmosphere, even more so than France last weekend. There's pumping music, you've got the roof to keep the noise in, and it seems like there's a lot of beer has been drunk. Traditionally, it would be shown on Eurosport, but I don't know if it'll be there or on Eurovision Sports or somewhere else. Keep an eye on the Ski Shoot Repeat Twitter feed, and I will try to keep you posted. The next World Cup meeting is in the new year, starting on the 6th of January in Petruca in Slovenia. The Slovenian men's team has, had, has got some wily veterans, um, but there's growing excitement about the Slovenian women's team. So we'll see how they go. For a small nation, Slovenia has built a really great sporting base, particularly in cycling, ski jumping and alpine skiing. So it would be great to see them performing well at home. But that's for 2023. One last thing. Um, I had a question from a podcast listener about the sights on a rifle, and I can confirm that they have no magnifying power at all. They're literally just there to help you focus your eye onto the target and nothing else. So yes, biathlon just got even harder than you think. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information and sources at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do follow on Twitter at Ski Shoot Repeat. I'm also on Instagram, Ski Shoot Repeat. But to be honest, there's more going on on Twitter. Uh, That's where you'll you'll just see me chatting away about random things. Do get in touch to give me your ideas. Tell me what's right and what's wrong. This podcast, as I've said, is built more on love than knowledge. Um, So please do let me know if there's anything that needs to get fact-checked. Also what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. I'll be taking the week off next week, but I will be back at the start of January to preview Pakuka and set things in motion for the rest of the World Cup season, including the World Championships. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle. Merry Christmas.